Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicle Stories of the Supernatural. And this is a follow-up that I did to a place in South Carolina. It's called the St. Elena Chapel of Ease. It's on Lands End Road in St. Elena's Island in what they call the Low Country. And I've had a lot of requests, especially from my podcast audience, that they would love to hear some of the stories, the folklore, the mysteries of all these places that I visit. So, uh, I lo- if you have a chance, you could check out the entire video on YouTube. Probably this is going to be separate, but anyway, uh, just so you'll know, it's, uh, it's an island. It's located in what they call the Port Royal Sound of South Carolina. And some say it's the oldest settlement in the United States. Uh, founded shortly around the time about 1520 when some of the Spanish were going up and down the coast to uh, on their voyages of discovery but anyway it was once known as the white church and that was because it was made of a material called tabby which is a combination of oyster shells and lime and it made the structure appear to glow while it was still in its glory however its glory days are long past Uh, of course because of the many years that it's been standing it's been heavily damaged however when you walk around inside, uh, there's definitely a heavy atmosphere, and you can almost that hushed, almost pat, pregnant with with things that have gone on inside conversations, prayers, um, almost like a a decay hangs on it. Uh, you could also call it creepy. <laughs> anyway. This um, what was called a Chapel of Ease, which was to help the planners in the area uh, have some type of location for spiritual retreat, considering that the main church was so far away from them. Was, um, it was, like I said, ideally situated for the planters of the island. And by 1812, it had been granted the designation of Parish Church. Now, on November 4th of 1861, Sunday services were interrupted by a messenger who brought news of the impending invasion of nearby Beaufort by Union troops to a Captain William Oliver Perry Fripp. And in that video, you'll see me that there's several gravestones belonging to the Fripp family. Uh, Fripp's ancestors had been instrumental in the building and upkeep of the chapel as John Fripp III had left 500 pounds for the purpose in 1780, which was quite a, quite a considerable sum. Now, only the year before, Edgar Fripp and his wife had taken their place in a mausoleum built for them in the adjacent graveyard back in 1852. And that mausoleum is still standing there on the grounds. Now, uh, what happens is, of course, uh, the Yankees arrived there in the area and they broke it open during the war, hoping for treasure. And of course, I don't believe they found anything. Now, to this day, that vault still remains out of order. And um, the planters, they all left the island with the arrival of the Union forces in 1861, and the church never regained its stature. Uh, stories relate that Union soldiers used it for services during the war as well as northerners who came to the area as in carpetbaggers after the war to educate and train the former slave population. 
The door of Fripp's vault was room by the soldiers, and at some point it was decided to break up the entrance. According to the story, a workman did a journeyman's job of sealing the vault, only to return the following day to find the bricks removed and neatly stacked besides the mausoleum. Convinced that the supernatural was afoot, in part aided by police assurances that no one had been in the area the previous night long enough to complete such a task, the job remained unfinished. Today the vault is empty, the door half sealed by bricks, and one of the experiences you have is looking into its vacant entrance. Uh, it's a little bit unsettling because all you see is just pieces of broken stone and I even took a good look and I said, I hope I don't see any bones, but of course there wasn't any down there. Um, now there's been reports of people hearing whispered prayers, singing, coming from the interior of the chapel. Uh, other people say, claim that they hear their names being shouted in the silent burial ground or in the surrounding forest. Uh, there's also a story of a lady shrouded in white walking amongst the tombstones, a child in her arms. Almost like a southern gothic Lucy Harker from Bram Stoker's Dracula carrying the child to her crypt for a midnight snack. Uh, there's a lot of stories on St. Elena's Islands and around the Chapel of Ease, which is no surprise uh, considering how many things have happened. Now, not too far away from there, uh, heading out towards Fort Fremont on the southwestern tip of the island known as Land's End, you pass beneath the overhanging branches of what has come to be known as the Hanging Tree. From a legend that runaway slaves were once hung there as a warning to others who contemplated escaping their shackles and chains. If you find yourself there after dark, park beneath its branches, turn off your headlamps, and wait for the lands and light. It begins in the distance like a single headlight coming down the road towards you. But as it grows closer, you realize it's much larger and not nearly as bright. Some say as it speeds by, it leaves you charged with static electricity. Others have reported being overtaken by the light as they drove back towards Port Royal Island. No one agrees on what the cause for the light might be, though it's pretty much agreed upon that the light is real and even somewhat reliable. Some even claim the light appears every night if you're patient enough. Sheriff's patrols in the 70s reported there, there might be a hundred or more cars lining the stretch of the road on some nights. And at least two people have died in auto accidents chasing down the light. Some say it's nothing more than swamp gas. Others say it's not bright enough to be swamp gas and it moves too quickly and with a purpose. Scientific studies were made on it in the 70s with no definitive conclusion. The one idea which seems to pull more weight than others is that it's an optical illusion created by the distant lights of headlamps further down the road, which perhaps is what led to the story that it's the ghost of several children who were killed when the bus they were riding in slammed into the hanging trees. Uh, those that believe the supernatural claim also say it's the ghost of unfortunate slaves hung from the tree as it's been said to hover among its branches. 
Some say it's the ghost of a Union officer who lost his head in the war. And another story, it's the soul of a departed Confederate soldier. The unfortunate fellow was on patrol one evening. When surprised by Union soldiers, one of them sliced his head off and tossed it in the bay. That he now roams the countryside looking for his lost head. Uh, from what I understand, there's still sightings of that light. Now, here's another story. Um, this is uh, what's called the Blue Lady on Hilton Head Island. And this is attached to the Leamington Lighthouse, uh, which right now stands in the Palmetto Dunes. And um, it was built around 1880 to guide ships into Port Royal Sound. And the story goes that in 1898, there was a frightful hurricane that pounded the coast of South Carolina. And Adam Fripp, the lighthouse keeper, was unwavering in his attempts to keep the light burning for a ship that was caught out in the terrible seas. But Fripp suffered a heart attack during the storm. His younger daughter, Caroline, moved him to the lighthouse keeper's cottage. Now, she vigilantly divided her time that night attending to the burning light to guide the ship to safety and checking on her father. Sadly, he passed, and the next few days, Caroline paced between the lighthouse and the cottage, all the while wearing the same long blue dress. She passed soon after, some say from shock, although some say she lived a long life, continuing to warn ships of high tides and storms. Now, another version of this tragic story is that Caroline was thrown over the railing of the lighthouse during the hurricane, while another version states that she was in love with a handsome young man that her father would not let her marry. She was so devastated that she hurled herself off of the lighthouse and to this day wanders the grounds looking for her true love. Legend has it that on rainy, windy nights, Caroline can be seen wandering the grounds of the original lighthouse complex, keeping watch and calling out for her deceased father or lost love, spending eternity donned in her long blue dress. The lightkeeper's quarters were moved to Harbor Town in the 1960s, where they still house local businesses. Some say the move confused Caroline, and she sometimes appears in this location as well. Uh, here's another uh, story. It's called The Lovers of Fripp Island Beach. And uh, the story goes that during the spring of 1718, Edward Teach, better known as Blackbeard, a notorious pirate, ordered a week-long blockade on Charleston, South Carolina. During this time, he took hostages, one rumored to be a member of the governor's council. According to the legend, he abducted a beautiful girl and whisked her away to Fripp Island. She wanted nothing to do with Blackbeard, and this infuriated him. He learned she was betrothed to another and had the man killed, bringing his severed hand to the girl. She was so grief-stricken that she drowned herself in the salty sea. Some say when the moon is full and bright, the two young lovers can still be seen walking down the shore, clutching each other in a warm embrace. So many... Uh, Urban myths makes you wonder if uh, any any truth in there somewhere. There probably is. Uh, here's another story. It's called William Baynard's Ghost, also at Hilton Head Island. 
uh, Braddock's Point Plantation had been in the Stoney family for four generations. It was one of the 20 working plantations of the time, and one of the most beautiful. Braddock's Point was 1,000 acres and owned by Captain Jack Stoney, or Saucy Jack, who drank heavily most days. One night, Saucy Jack challenged William Baynard, a newcomer and successful planner from Edisto Island, to a high-stakes poker game. Being sauced up, Stoney used the title to Braddock's Point to cover his bet when he lost the hand to Baynard. Within a year, Baynard's new land had yielded him extreme wealth, and he met and married Catherine Scott in 1829. The Baynards loved Braddock's Point and entertained there often. During one lavish party, Catherine became violently ill, possibly from malaria, and died. William was devastated and inconsolable. She was buried at the Zion Cemetery, still located at the intersection of Follyfield Road and Highway 278. William passed away 15 years later, never missing a single day to visit Catherine's grave. It is whispered that on stormy or foggy nights, William Baynard's ghost can still be seen riding in his departed hearse led by four ghostly horses on the way to the cemetery for his daily visit. Next one is the Joseph Johnson House and the Ghost of Gauche Beaufort. Uh, now this is, um, this is located at 411 Craven Street in Beaufort. And it overlooks the beautiful Beaufort River. It's called the Castle. It was built in 1861 for Dr. Joseph Johnson. Now due to the Civil War, the house was left unfinished and uh, was seized by Union forces to be used as a hospital, Morgan Cemetery. Now Johnson was able to reacquire the property after the war by paying a hefty tax. A former director of the National Trust for Historic Preservation called it one of the great houses of the South Carolina coast. And also that it has quite an air of somber mystery as it sits at the water's edge. Now, legend has it that John Ribot, a French explorer, settled in Beaufort in 1562, bringing a dwarf jester with him named Gauche. Now, John Ribot de developed Charles Fort, which is the well-known United States Marine base today, Paris Island. There is no evidence of how Gauche died. Some say he was hanged. Some say he fell ill and died, while others still whisper that he was killed in a fight. There are accounts that a dwarf from Portugal named Grenache Le Guifin lived in Beaufort during this time and was killed in a Yemasi Indian raid. While there is no evidence that connects Gauche to the castle, some believe that the little jester is drawn to the house for eternity because of the suffering that occurred there during the war. Many people visiting the house say they have seen an apparition of the dwarf dressed in clothes that we all attribute to jesters of that period. People have also claimed to witness doors and windows mysteriously opening and closing, furniture moving in the middle of the night and unexplained ringing of bells. Some claim a cool breeze from the creek passes around the house and the only thing left of this eerie fog 
is red handprints on the window. Now, um, next one is uh, what's called the Eternal Resident, also located in Beaufort. Built in 1816, the Whig Barnwell House was moved from its original location and it was taken to 501 King Street. Now, during the Civil War, the Whig Barnwell House was confiscated and used as a Union Hospital. It was owned by the Barnwell family until 1895, after which it was used as a school and then an apartment house. Now, the story goes that a woman was murdered in one of the apartments and never left. And many wonder if the ghost of that murdered resident move with a building to its new location. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Now, this is an old wives' tale about spirits in the South. And uh, a couple of years ago, on one of my visits to Charleston, uh, I spoke with a native there that confirmed this and even showed me some houses where they actually still practice this. And a uh, even in other words this old wife still is still in use today now the way they look at it the door is a powerful thing it is the main point of entry and keeps out bad spirits in southern folklore it is unlucky to open the back door for the first time entering a house because only the front door is protected from evil also opening a door when someone dies allows the easy exit of that soul it was believed that cats suck the breath out of newborn babies. Angola burial customs mirrors are turned or covered so that the deceased won't be reflected. At the burial site, the family smashes and breaks bottles or dishes so as to break the chain of death in the family. The belief that evil spirits are able to control one's will, the Gullah put newsprint on their walls or fold newspapers and tuck it inside their shoe. In doing this, they feel protected because the spirit must read every word before they can control them. In the south, a blue painted trim shutters and underside of the porch roof is believed to be protective barrier between the living and the dead. And that's the part I witnessed. Uh, this native there took me to several modern houses that had exactly that. They had trim around the houses and the windows painted. It's almost like a greenish blue color. Now this is a story, it's called The Shadow of the Beast. On the night of June 10th, 1988, 17-year-old Christopher Davis was driving through Scape or Swamp, a dismal bog near Bishopsville, South Carolina. It was late and the boy was tired, having moments before driven his date home. He was heading east along the narrow road when he heard a pop and felt the car lurch out of control to the right. A flat, he groaned, dreading the thought of having to stop in the middle of the swamp to change the tire. Not that he was afraid. He knew these woods like the back of his hand. He and his buddies had fished and hunted these parts since he was a kid. But as he pulled his car off the edge of the road, he did feel suddenly alone and afraid. It was way past midnight with not another car in sight. The moon was high, but dark, gloomy shadows pressed in from the deep woods, 
scattered every few yards by moonbeams. Stepping outside the car that night was like stepping into another world, an uninviting world of shifting shadows. Then Davis realized how quiet it was. There was no sound, not even the chirp of a cricket or the croak of a bullfrog. That's odd, he thought, popping the trunk open and hauling out the spare tire and jack. Usually, this time of night in the swamp was jamming with all kinds of grunting and groaning. Why was everything so quiet? He didn't like it. To calm his nerves, he started whistling. It was a hot, humid night, typical for that time of year, but a pleasant breeze stirred through the moss-draped oaks and pines. He pulled off his shirt and slung it inside the car. Dead, he thought. Maybe everything in the swamp was dead. Maybe some toxic nerve gas or other chemical junk had been dumped into the swamp and all the animals had belly-upped beneath the lily pads. It was only a joke, but somehow he didn't feel like laughing. He worked quickly, first removing the flat tire, then replacing it with a spare. At the back of his mind was a wish, that he could see the headlights of another car approaching up the highway. That would be a welcome sight. He vowed never to complain about traffic again. The, tra the tire changed. Young Davis wiped his hands and looked around before stepping back into the car. That's when he heard the noise off in the woods, a shuffling sound, like that of a large animal dragging itself slowly towards him through the brushes. He was reminded of the sound skin divers make when they try to walk on dry lands with flippers. Swish, swish, swish. Without a flashlight, it was impossible to see what was making the noise. Not that he really wanted to, but something had come over the boy and he found himself unable to move. Large drops of sweat broke out on his forehead and the palms of his hands felt like jelly. He stood there for several more seconds, glued to the spot, listening to the swishing sound advance steadily closer. His heart was pounding inside his chest like a jackhammer. Sweat poured down his face. Then he saw the creature. It stood less than ten feet away from him, a tall, slimy hulk that looked like some kind of weird cross between a man and an ape. In the pale light of the moon, Davis estimated the thing stood at least seven feet tall and appeared greenish-black. For several seconds, boy and beast stood on the lonely highway at the edge of scape or swamp staring at each other. The boy was the first to move. He moved fast, leaping into the car and slamming the door shut behind him. Mercifully, the car's engine roared to life. As it did, the creature sprang. It was strong, and it wasn't an animal, and it wasn't no man, Davis later told Sheriff Liston Truesdale. The lizard-like monster first grabbed the door, then started banging on the roof. Frantically, Davis put the car in gear and accelerated, the creature hanging onto the hood. Davis had to swerve several times along the road before the creature finally lost its grip and tumbled off the car into the dark. To the young man's horror, however, 
the thing managed to keep pace with him at about 35 miles per hour. Davis's ordeal was the first known encounter with South Carolina's now famous lizard man. It was not to be the last. In the days and weeks that followed, dozens of other people reported seeing a large reptile-like animal loping through the rugged woods and fields of rural Lee County, South Carolina. Most of the sightings occurred in or near Scape or Swamp, a particularly gloomy region which got its strange name and Revolutionary War days. According to one legend, the name was shortened from Escaped Horse Swamp, so-called because a group of British soldiers had escaped from an American ambush there. Most descriptions of the monster matched Davis's down to their red eyes, lizard-like skin, and greenish-black color. One farmer near Brownsville said something resembling the creature broke into his hog pen and caused all kind of ruckus before he chased it away with a shotgun blast. The thing he saw had a long, thick tail, which it used to help climb over a fence and escape. There were bloodstains all over his hog pen the next day. The Lizard Man of Brownville, as the creature soon became to be known, spread terror throughout this rural region as more sightings were reported. Sheriff's deputies were pressed into round-the-clock action as alarmed citizens began stocking up on guns and ammunition. Investigators combed the county for clues, escorted by volunteer hunters armed with high-powered weapons. Before long, the entire country knew about the monster. Network television crews swarmed into town along with reporters for national newspapers, magazines, and wire services. Everybody from Seattle to Seneca wanted to know more about the monster said to be haunting the lonely Lee County countryside. But what was it? Nobody seemed to know. There were theories, of course, many of them wilder than descriptions provided by eyewitnesses. Explanations ranged from the plausible to the fanciful. Some said it was a bear. Others insisted the thing had to be an escaped gorilla. A few thought it was a hoax. Maybe a man decked out in a weird outfit. Others claimed the monster was another Bigfoot, the legendary ape-man said to roam the higher elevations of the Pacific Northwest. The description did not match those of recent Bigfoot sightings in other southern states, notably Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, North Carolina, and Alabama. One of the most incredible accounts came from Florida in the mid-1970s when a deputy sheriff by the name of Joe Simboli reported an encounter with a seven-foot-tall, hair-covered creature just north of the Everglades. One year later, a large, hairy animal reportedly killed and ripped apart a horse and beheaded a calf on the farm of Debbie and Michael Polenik in central Florida. An investigation revealed that tracks around the slaughtered animal resembled those of Bigfoot or Sasquatch, the name given by the Indians to the creature. Stories about fantastic creatures roaming the backwoods of North America are nothing new. Early pioneers pressing into the wilderness from the East Coast told of hair-raising encounters with giant bears, bear men, wolf men, and similar creatures. One of the most widespread legends, which probably had its origins in Indian mythology, centered on the wumpus cat an impossibly hideous creature 
said to have the head of a man, the body of a wildcat, only larger and the soul of a demon. Like Bigfoot, the wampus cat was said to lurk among the gloomy river bottoms of the south and to take fiendish delight in preying upon hunters, fishermen, and others who strayed too far off the beaten path. Whereas wampus cat stories eventually petered out around the turn of the century, however, tales of harrowing run-ins with Bigfoot creatures continue to this very day. Along the Mississippi River and all across the arc of the Gulf Coast, numerous legends still exist about another dangerous creature, one the Cajuns call Luke Guru. Half man and half beast, these hairy bipeds, which bear remarkable resemblance to the wampus cat, are thought to be responsible for kidnapping children and livestock. In all, more than 13 states, many of them southern, have reported sightings of incredible beasts such as Bigfoot, Loop Guru, or the Lizard Man. As soon as stories about Lee County's own Bigfoot made the network news, it was only a matter of time before curiosity seekers swarmed into town. Along with the visitors came more sightings of the creature, which soon started being officially billed as the Lizard Man because of its reptilian characteristics. A few days after Davis's initial sightings, another Lee County citizen reported shooting something that resembled the boy's description. The fellow even offered the local sheriff some scales and blood for proof. That proof, however, resulted in the shooter receiving a citation. A crime lab analysis revealed the scales and blood apparently came from a dead fish. Another couple camped near the swamp blamed the critter for battering their car and pulling wires out of the engine. That same day, a carload of visitors from Charleston claimed to have spotted a large, ugly, gorilla-like thing scurrying across a field about six miles from Bishopville. In spite of the testimony from several respected eyewitnesses, local authorities continued to dismiss the lizard man as a hoax. A wildlife biologist called in to study a set of plaster cast, made other creature's footprints determined that at least some of the tracks were man-made. Those results, plus additional laboratory findings on what was said to be the creature's hair, worked to quiet the lizard mania that had swept through the small farming community of 3,500 people. Law enforcement officers, weary from answering calls at all hours of the night, from frantic citizens claiming to have spotted the creature, were relieved when things settled down a few months later. But late at night, when the moon is high, and a curious kind of silence stalks the clammy darkness, folks around these parts have become accustomed to thinking twice before getting in the car and driving through scape or swamp. Hi, everybody. Well, here we are. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I enjoy uh, telling these stories, uh, especially, like I said, for those of you who are just listening to the podcast. So please uh, subscribe to my channel, uh, share the link. Uh, again, I'm asking for any of my true believers, if you've got true stories, go to my website, miamighostchronicles.com and look at the tab that says submit your story. And you can either email it to me, tape yourself. Uh, or we could get together and I can either uh, record you on the phone or on Skype. Just go there and you'll see what I mean. 
and I want to thank you so very, very much for being part of the audience. Make sure to catch me on Facebook and on Twitter when I live stream via Periscope. And uh, those are for when I'm on the road. So again, thank you so much for being part of the audience. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. Take care.